Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Eric Smith. He is a returning guest to the podcast, and he's going to talk about, among other things, issues of race. Before I tell you more about him, just quickly, the Unspeakeasy retreats that I've been talking about over the last several weeks are basically sold out. There's a retreat coming up in February, February 18th and 19th, as well as one in the Seattle area in April. There may be a little room in those. I am trying uh, the best I can to accommodate more people, but there was huge interest and you know, the whole sort of magic of the retreats is that they're so small. It's an intimate group. I'm capping it at about 15 participants generally. So if you are interested in those retreats, feel free to get in touch, but that's where we're at at this point. The good news is that we are going to be rolling out the online community very soon. That is going to be a subscription-based thing where you can join us and get in on any number of discussions. You can connect with like-minded or even not like-minded people who are nonetheless interested in open discussions about all sorts of things. We're going to have book clubs. I'm going to be doing live streams. I'm going to be interacting with people and it's going to be really awesome. So I will keep you posted about that. That's going to be a lot more accessible in terms of cost as well as rather than the, than the, uh, the retreats themselves. Although we are going to be offering more of those in different places throughout the country. And I will be making more announcements about those soon. So anyway, uh, the unspeakeasy.com is where you go to find out about that. Again, it's for women only at this point, but I am going to be expanding this whole platform down the road. So it welcomes everybody because there has just been enormous interest in this from all sorts of people. So don't worry if you've, I'm, I'm thinking of everything here. Okay. My guest, Eric Smith, is an associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. And his scholarly work focuses on things like political rhetoric, Buddhist philosophy, rhetorics of diversity, composition pedagogy, discourse identity. Eric was on the podcast talking about critical race theory back in July of 2021, when that subject started appearing in headlines. Since we spent most of our conversation trying to tease out the origins of CRT and what it meant for people in schools and workplaces in the current moment, I thought I would bring him back to have a somewhat more casual and free-ranging conversation just about the state of racial discussions overall. Eric offered some practical advice, for instance, what to do when CRT or DEI protocols are introduced into your school or workplace, how to distinguish positive and useful implementations of CRT from counterproductive ones, what questions to ask, who to ask, how to ask those questions in a non-threatening way. He talks about why, as a Black academic, he has become, in his words, a pariah in his field, and why he thinks some contemporary anti-racism efforts have a hand in keeping racism alive. Eric also sticks around for some extra conversation that's available to paying subscribers of this podcast Substack page, just like last week, we get a little more personal in this portion. I ask him how he feels about being the age that he is and how he feels about his life circumstances at the moment, not just professionally, but personally. 
talks about what it's like to live in a rural area as an unmarried middle-aged person. And uh, something I've talked about a lot, the loneliness of being out of ideological step with your peers and neighbors. So if you want to hear that stuff, go to megandaum.substack.com and become a paying subscriber on any level. Otherwise, enjoy this conversation with Eric Smith. Eric Smith, welcome back to The Unspeakable. Hi, nice to be back. You were here, I think in July of 2021, you were talking about critical race theory. Uh, It was having a bit of a moment and I brought you in to try to break it down, explain what it is, what it's attempting to do, what it fails to do, all of that. I know since then you've um, published or you've co-authored a book about CRT, The Lure of Disempowerment reclaiming agency in the age of CRT. Maybe we could just start by you telling us if you think anything's changed since we last spoke. Have things gotten worse, gotten better? What's going on? Well, I think more people are aware of what's going on, Um, perhaps not fully aware. Uh, And what I mean by that is maybe they haven't, you know, done the readings or they're not privy to the theoretical foundations of uh, what's going on, contemporary anti-racism, but they know there's an issue. And, and they, they seem to think, unfortunately, that this is an issue that is separated starkly uh, on political grounds, meaning that people for CRT and contemporary anti-racism are on the left and people against it are on the right. That's still a misconception. I think it's Becoming clearer, but it's still a misconception. There are many people on the left who don't know, who do not like this stuff either. And um, I think that's like my New Year's resolution. One of them anyway, is to make sure people realize that this is a bipartisan pushback. Okay, well, then this is a great time to be talking because I still I think like a lot of people, I don't really know what we mean specifically when we say CRT. I think maybe because it's a case by case basis, right? Like, does it depend on what who's teaching it, what the institution is. I mean, we have something like the Stop Woke Act, terrible name, Mm -hmm. in Florida. I'm not exactly, like, it seems to me like if you actually parse that, it's not as extreme as it may sound. Like, where do we even begin to try to understand what's actually happening? Um, You can begin by a couple of things. Uh, In your community, uh, in your workplace, your school or whatever, Um, When things like this come up, when diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives come up, ask for definitions, uh, or what I call operational definitions, which is how are you defining this in this particular situation? Maybe it's not the same uh, word semantically outside of academia or the workplace, but how are you defining it here? Um, When you ask those questions and they are answered, you can decide how extreme things are. Uh, critical race theory, you know, is that a theory? The problem is when you put it into practice. And often when we put it into practice, uh, different people have different ideas about how that should manifest. And some of those ideas are quite erroneous and some are understandable. So it is a case by case basis. I don't like the idea that we're calling all of this CRT. There are things in CRT that I think are worthwhile, perhaps a better term is critical social justice, because uh, 
a lot of what's going on kind of echoes those tenants. The main tenant being, don't ask if racism happened, ask how it manifested in this situation, which is to say that racism is always already there. I think that's an issue. And I, I think um, a lot of the DEI initiatives that are problematic anyway are following critical social justice. So I wish people would start using that term or another term other than CRT. Okay. And are you more concerned about what's happening like in HR departments, in just in corporate spaces and people's in adults' places of employment rather than what's happening on campuses? Because I think we can kind of get like hung up on extreme campus examples when in fact this is like pretty widespread or it's starting to be. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested and concerned about both contexts, uh, really. And again, that is also situational. Some places, you know, they'll go through the training and then nobody listens to it, you know? Right. Um, they just, uh, they, they did the training because they had to, nobody's taking it seriously. There are other places where people are very much taking it seriously and people are walking on eggshells because they're not allowed to say things like, uh, you know, um, the most qualified person should get this job. You know, they're not allowed to say things like that and all kinds of other things that are or are not racist depending on who's listening to it. So uh, I am I'm very concerned about this, but I'm going to keep echoing the idea that this is all contextual. You know, some places it manifests in relatively innocuous ways and in, in beneficial ways. And then other, other places, not so much. OK, I don't know if this example is so extreme as to almost be moot, but I want to talk about this thing called the Stanford Harmful Language Act paper whatever it was, Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative. Now, I have to say, Eric, I love talking with you, and I had been meaning to have you back on the podcast for a really long time. And what caused me to finally get in touch with you was when this story broke in mid-December. Stanford basically published this long list of words that was suggested that people not use sort of when they're whenever anybody's kind of putting copy on a on a website or generating any text like that's coming under the auspices of the Stanford institution. What did you think when you saw this? Um, I thought, wow, they really think people of color are infantile and weak. That's the first thing that uh, came to mind uh, when I saw that. I'm trying to pull it up right now because I think it's important to take a look at here. Okay, so there are, I don't know, there's really dozens and dozens of words on here and they're divided into into categories. I mean, they they set this up by saying the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative is a multi-phase, multi-year project to address harmful language in IT at Stanford. Like, okay, I guess that means like, like internet technology, just like it doesn't, they're not actually saying you can't say these things out loud in a classroom. They're just sort of, this is kind of like how you use language when you're creating documents, I suppose. So it's divided into ableist, ageism, colonialism, culturally appropriative. I mean, and it is, this is really like almost something like out of the onion. Yeah. Like they don't want you to use the the word brave because it just the word brave in any context perpetuates the stereotype of the noble, courageous savage, equating the indigenous male as being less than a man. It's like, whoa. <laughs> now uh, that you yeah, put it if that you way. Want it to be, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, 
it's it's really it's it's really absurd. Um, earlier this morning, um, I heard that fields now bad. The word field. Oh, I saw that field in social work. Right, you can't do field work because field reminds black people of picking cotton in the field in the eighteen hundreds. Oh, I thought it was because field research implies like going out and studying the savage natives. Ooh, I didn't even think yes. of the cotton field. Yeah. Well, I did. What do you think? The fact that we saw two different things <laughs> is kind of the point, right? You know, these words mean what you want them to mean. And if you understand context and semantics therein, then you understand that when saying field in this situation, it means field work, you're going out to help people, right? Uh, when you say master in this context, you're not invoking slavery. You're, you're doing something else, right? You're, you're talking about the main uh, whatever, uh, master program or whatever, the main program, right? Yeah. Um, it's all about context. And context is thrown out the window when it comes to contemporary anti-racism based on critical social justice anyway. Context is bad. Right. Every context is racist. Remember the tenet I, I gave you before. It's the question isn't, did racism happen? How did it manifest in that situation? So context is thrown out the window. And when you throw out context, you can say all kinds of things. Okay, but just to be clear, I thought, I, I was seeing the racist element of it, but it was more like, I didn't think of slaves in the field. Uh, we're definitely not supposed to say slave anymore, sorry. But like, I did not think of people working in fields, I thought of like anthropologists conducting field work and how like that in and of itself is a sort of colonial practice because you would have your perhaps white researcher coming in, like studying people in Papua New Guinea or something. And that's a form of white supremacy. That's where I thought that was going. When I hear the word field, I'm reminded of sports and it offends me because I'm old and I can't play organized sports anymore. So that's ageist. That bothers me, and it's it's very it's very hurtful. I'm I'm kidding. Yeah. This is yeah. um all, <laughs> I, I like to make light of these things because no it helps me get through it more. Field. See, I always see. Okay, okay. So field, you're not allowed to say. But okay, so for um, on on the Stanford list, I don't think field had quite made it onto the Stanford list. The other thing is you 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 throw down the gauntlet like that. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say bury the hatchet, by the way. So throw down the gauntlet's got to be next. But, you know, there's so many words here that it becomes like a parlor game to up the ante and think of even more of them. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's how I have to look at it sometimes to get through certain things. Uh, when I'm reading, quote unquote, woke literature, um, the absurdity of it can get, well, you know, somewhat uncomfortable Right. I, I start getting upset at the fact that the world is this way. So I have to pretend to satire. And if I pretend to satire, I can get through the text. You know, so that's where I am right now. So when I joke about things, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so just to go through a few examples so people have the idea. So Stanford says instead of saying barrio, uh, consider just saying the name of the neighborhood because barrio indicates any socially segregated non-white neighborhood. Well, OK, first of all, I don't barrio is like especially like Latino, Hispanic. Am I wrong about that? Um, that's what I thought. Uh, black hat uh, assigns. This is <laughs> OK. A black well, hat is, a, yeah, this is, okay, go ahead. Are you offended Well, I mean, I, I remember a long time ago that, you know, people were talking about the inherent 
racism and language, and they bring up the idea that the bad guy always wears a black always wears a black hat or is always dressed in black. You are blacklisted. You're not whitelisted, right? You're blackballed, right? So, yeah. so I, I'm used to that idea, and part of me gets it, but a, a, it's not racial. You know, it's about the what the color symbolizes uh, in certain cultures and things like that. You know, I I'm less appalled by things like that uh, because I think we can, you know, change the terms and, and, and it wouldn't be suggestive that black is always associated with darkness and evil. Um, but when it comes to things like this, right, uh, this uh, Stanford list, there are, there are other words that are just, I mean, they're just common ideas. Let's go back to field. You know, if if my interpretation of, of what they mean by field is correct, well, slaves were in the kitchen too. Yeah. Are we going to get rid of kitchen? You know, probably. Uh, so that's when it gets sexist. absurd to me. Yes. Well, sexist kitchen is gendered, perhaps. Yeah. So we're getting right. rid of that anyway. Okay, but see this the the thing about yeah. So they say black mark, black sheep, black bulb, black box. See, okay, a hidden mystery box, opaque box, flight recorder. Okay, but see, in the black is positive, right? Yeah. Yes. So what do they do about that? If you're in the black, you start making a profit. Is that not what that means? Uh, that is what that means. But in the red could be uh, anti-Native oh, American. Oh, you're right. You're right. You know? So, okay. so there's that. See, you, you uh, can go all over the place. This is a bit of a parlor game, as you said. Yeah. You know, uh, figure out how to make something racist. Right. You know, you can sit around a, a table at a dinner party and do that. Have a good time. Yeah. Cakewalk. Enslaved people covertly used exaggerated dance to mock their enslavers. This turned into, quote, balls that the white enslavers would hold for entertainment where the prize was a cake. Is that true? Yes. I don't mind that one. Okay. Okay. Good to know. I didn't know <laughs> I, that. I don't mind that one. I mean, and here's the thing. Like, it doesn't mean that anymore. With time, the historical context we're in, it means something completely different. In a way, what people are uh, committing here is a genetic fallacy. Like uh, something started this way, so it must still be that way. Right. You know, cakewalk does not mean what it meant back then. You know, so if we were to keep cakewalk, I would not lose sleep at all. You know, um, I, it doesn't offend me. I know the origins of it, but it doesn't offend me. That being said... If we did get rid of it, I kind of understand. You know, uh, it does have, uh, yeah. Okay. I got it. Okay. Well, I had no idea where that came from. Rule of thumb. Okay. This is, uh, this has always been an urban myth that uh, rule of thumb is attributed to an old British law that allowed men to beat their wives with sticks no wider than their thumb. But they also say no record exists of that today. So this is just something that people have assumed. So you're not allowed to say that. Okay. Um, yeah, there's anyway, whatever. We can go down this list. I mean, it's this is this is pretty low hanging fruit. Are you allowed to say that? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's easy to make fun of this. But you know, when we spoke last, you talked about how you had been like a DEI trainer or you were involved in this as an administrator earlier in your career. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, in the aughts, I was um assistant to the provost on diversity. 
And what that really meant is I do workshops every once in a while about, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, being more open-minded, thinking about uh, bias and where it is and how we can be more inclusive. I told myself when I stopped doing that, that I'd never do it again, but not because of the reasons you're probably imagining. I wasn't, I mean, I knew about CRT, but I wasn't doing the CRT. I was just saying, hey, treat everybody with respect, you know? You know, I, I was treat everybody equally. Don't judge people based on race. Get to know them first. Those are the kind of things I was. That's very banal, I was talking about. Eric. That's really yeah, right. Really prosaic. Yes, yes. It's 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 uh it's 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 mundane. It's banal. I was I was uh, writing this morning about the banality of CRT, but we'll get to that later on. Um, or or anti racism in its contemporary manifestation. But anyway, um, that's what I was doing then. I swore it off because. It didn't work, you know. <laughs> Nobody took it seriously. I mean, you can, you can, you can tell people to do something or tell people they should do something, but that's all you can do. Tell them, you know. Uh, the way to alleviate, you know, racial contention is repeated interaction, right? Dialogue, that thing that is uh, shunned in many anti-racist circles these days. Dialogue with people different from you who hold different beliefs, right? And to the best of your ability looking at people in good faith, right? Don't think, oh, this person's here uh, to be racist or this person's definitely racist because of the way they look. Don't do that. You know, don't project your ideas onto other people. You know, that's, that's the way to do it. So repeated interaction, conversation, and, you know, uh, looking at people, you know, as people. That's it. You know, that's what you have to do. Me telling people to not be racist wasn't doing anything. And, okay. And what years were, were, were this about? What years were these? Um, 2006 to 2008. Okay. And were you like a relatively new professor at that time? Where were you in the trajectory of your career? I was two years into being a professor there at the time. Okay. And you, you're a professor of, of rhetoric. You're a rhetorician. Like, yes. you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about, um, <laughs> about how old you are, because I want to talk about how old I am and how old everybody is. But you, like, what was your relationship to sort of academia or the world of ideas as a Black man going through school and growing up and entering academia? Well, you know, obviously you have people who look at you and presume you're incompetent, right? And I think there is a, a book or an article called Presumed Incompetent. But the thing, how I dealt with that is to just be myself. You know, the fact that this person thinks I'm incompetent doesn't mean I am, right? <laughs> you know, I, I know who I am. And that's somebody who is, is quite competent and uh, quite good at what he does, Right. So I just let my actions speak for themselves. And uh, if anybody is thinking critically, they would look at me and, and, and say, OK, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. And then you always have people who are just upset that a black guy is intelligent, you know, but um, those people were typically I met those people in graduate school. Those are my peers in graduate school. Uh, they didn't really come into play as much during my career. I did work at a certain school where uh, it was harder to get past those things. And, you know, I, I did what I could there, you know, spoke out against it and things like that. And that's what you should do. You should speak out against it. But I spoke out against it when it was egregious and clear that it was going on. And I wasn't 
projecting things or making assumptions. I wanted to talk, right? I wanted to have a conversation. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, produce repeated interactions with as many people uh, as I possibly could. So uh, that's how I, I, I've gotten through it. The, the issues I have with contemporary anti-racism isn't that, you know, racism doesn't exist. You know, I, I think it does, and I think we need to deal with it. I just don't like the methodology. I don't like the way they're approaching it. I don't like the um, ideological framework they have, right? So, so, so that's what I'm pushing back on. When you say that you encountered people in graduate school who looked at you and thought you didn't know what you were talking about, I mean, that's clearly manifestation of, of racism. Like, were there other, I'm curious if you could give an example or two, I don't know if you can, but I'm also curious, were there other people like in your position who were just having a totally different reaction than you were? Like they were actually, the, the seeds of CRT were sort of, you know, beginning to germinate w- within them as this stuff went down. Like, why do you think somebody would go on? You, you take one approach, you go down one path and somebody in your exact same position would go down the other path. What's the difference? Well, first of all, I, I want to say that in graduate school, there are more people who, yeah, I, I, it was pretty easy to prove myself uh, in graduate school. There are just people there who didn't like the fact that I could. You know, so that was the... Uh, the main manifestation of racism there uh, in grad school. And that was among my peers. However, regarding other Black people in my program, there was one person who is now a prominent figure in the field of rhetoric and composition um, who was doing this CRT stuff back then and seeing racism everywhere, like absolutely everywhere. Like you were already racist if you were white and you walked into the room. You know, I'm, I'm I'm not exaggerating one bit. I pushed back on that then because it annoyed me but I didn't, I didn't take it seriously. I didn't think this guy would get very far with that attitude. Now he's a leader in the <laughs> you field. You didn't say this guy's got the, the keys to the future. Uh-oh. Yeah. 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 I mean, this guy has race carded his way to everything he has. And I, I saw the beginning of it. You know, um, but anyway, um, yeah, he, uh, he was on to something, wasn't he? And you just thought it wasn't going to go anywhere. But No, I, I, I didn't. I thought he was an idiot. I kind of still do. And I thought that people would see through them. But no, people are afraid to. People are afraid to critique this guy. They're afraid. I've seen it. They they, they fear him. And I'm like, this guy's a joke. Are you kidding me? Why why are you scared of this dude? You know, but, you know, they fear him because you're 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 not supposed to push back on black people. You're not supposed to push back on people of color in general, especially if they're doing anti-racist work. You're not allowed to ask questions, let alone say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So here we are. This uh, this person I'm talking about is running roughshod through the field because nobody's stopping him. You know, well, well, except you just me. said field. You just said. Field. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I did say field. I bet he okay, would not I, say I'll... he's running roughshod through the field. Is he even in the field? What's his field? If you want to uh, ask him. But he say, I don't you're, recognize you're saying, that. You're saying that word a lot. Um, <laughs> he's in my field. Yes. Okay. So, like, this, was, this would have been the mid-aughts. So I'm just trying to get a sense of the timeline here. So you're going through your career as a scholar, as a, as a professor, as an academic. Like, are you, how quickly are things changing? Um, I think things changed very quickly in the middle of last decade. Right. Around um, 2016 and 2017 for me, 
I started noticing it anyway. And um, a lot of that has to do with the internet, the fact that we're seeing these things, right? We're not just hearing about them. You know, uh, Rodney King in the early 90s was well, you know, it, it kind of an aberration because we never really saw things. We heard about them. But then that was just the only one, really. Now it's there are a bunch of them. Right. So so uh, obviously that opens the door um, for modes of uh, pushing back. And the mode of pushing back that is favored these days is the one I like the least, unfortunately. Um, but that's. That's what's going on. It's always been around, but now it's on steroids because there was a uh, what's called in rhetoric a chirotic moment. Uh, there was a window of opportunity that was too perfect, and it was taken. That that window of opportunity wasn't available in the uh, aughts or the nineties, not in the same way, anyway. Right. So once you have this new technology, because people didn't have cameras, they weren't running around yes. with their phones all the right. time. I mean, that has right. to be. The, the sort of major feature. I, I feel like that's, if you're going to boil all these changes down to one thing, it's the fact that everybody's got a camera in their hands and we see every single thing that happens. So, okay, the chirotic moment, I've never heard that term. Like, are you saying that there was one incident? I mean, pre-George Floyd, I'm assuming, but that was another, that would have been another one. Uh, I'm talking in general, like Ky George Floyd was the ultimate chirotic moment. All right. I, we can talk about that in a second. But a Kairos is the confluence of time, place, subject matter. And when they all come together, what does that suggest rhetorically? Or what does that suggest as far as how you're supposed to interpret things? For example, I, I, I published on the chirotic moment of uh, the race speech that Barack Obama made um, during his campaign in 2008. If Jeremiah Wright was the person who uh, was uh, his pastor, apparently, who said some uh, risque things about America. And uh, it was caught on tape and uh, Obama got into some hot water with that. So he gave a long and I think pretty good speech on race. Now, if you would have given that speech without Jeremiah Wright, people would have been like, OK, this guy's doing the race thing again. He's always perpetuating. Oh, this is what we can expect. A race card and yada, yada, yada. But when George, um, George, I'm sorry, Jeremiah Wright happened, it gave him the kairos, the chirotic moment. Okay, now I can talk about it because it's in response to this. Oh, right? I see. So now I can justify this speech. The last decade was a large chirotic moment for critical social justice because we were seeing all these things on, on video and all these people getting off, right? who were accused of uh, murdering people for purely racist reasons, not knowing the intricacies of the case, right? I mean, I do think George Zimmerman should be in jail, but that's uh, neither here nor there uh, with what we're talking about right now. Right. So in general, that, that last decade was a long, chirotic moment. Now, George Floyd, that, I compare that to the Reichstag fire. Uh, do we know what that is? Uh, I don't. I'm embarrassed to say. No, 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 no. It's it's um, the Reichstag fire was an incident um, in uh, pre World War II Germany uh, that the Nazis uh, said, "Okay, wait a minute. See, these people are so bad. They're lighting our uh, you know Parliament on fire, right? Our government building on fire, our capital on fire. So you need to give us all the power so we can take care of these guys." 
It's a, the, the moment's too big. We can't wait for regular procedures. We just have to do this right here, right now, right? So the Reichstag fire was an excuse to give Nazis full power. Okay. Uh, who knows who lit that fire? I mean, there, there are all kinds of, you know, legends and speculations and things like that. But uh, basically, they saw the fire. The fire was the Kairos, the chirotic moment, and they took it. George Floyd was that to a large degree. You know, that that happened. It was on tape and it was, you know, it was awful. And, you know, um, the cop is in jail for the rest of his life, um, which is precisely what should happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's, it's what I, I think some of uh, his partners are also uh, in trouble as well. And, and that's good. Right. But what it did was, you know, it created a, you know, mushroom cloud of uh, anti-racism. And it also created the fear of pushing back because people saw that and said, OK, if I push back on this, you know, I, 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 I'm part of the problem now. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, we, we see what happened with George Floyd. We need to do something here and now. We need to go past the regular procedures of of conversation and things like that, and and get things done. And that was uh, people who were doing critical social justice. Their eyes widened. You know, I'm sure with this whole thing is that okay. Here it is. You know, let, let's jump in with this. Right. <laughs> if I was Kathy Newman and you were Jordan Peterson, I would be saying, so you're comparing Black Lives Matter to Nazis? Mm-hmm. There yeah, well, uh, uh, is that your roundabout way of actually asking that question? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I can um, see how... I, no, I see, I see the point the, I'm comparing making. the Kairos. It's an, yes, it's an, opportu- it's, it's, yeah. it's an opportunity. Yeah, no, that's a, yes. uh, that's a really interesting concept, and I wasn't familiar with that term. It's so maddening because you think back to that Cairo speech that Obama gave after the Jeremiah Wright incident. And I remember being totally blown away by that speech. I loved it. I just thought it was incredibly subtle. It was nuanced, our favorite thing. It it did a lot of things at once. I just thought it was exquisite. And to, to go from that to just absolute, the, the blunt instrument of the current like racial discussion, it's pretty devastating actually yes i i agree and and you mentioned nuance nuance is a dying a dying concept when it comes to uh social justice contemporary social justice anyway right that speech was very nuanced right nothing was black and white i i don't have to say that's pardon the pun anymore with that right i mean that's that's been yeah overdone. i think we can i'm gonna stop yeah, yeah there's not as a million words i'm was about to use that i yeah let's just well it it you know to be sure, everything we're saying is problematic. Okay, let's go on. Yeah. <laughs> Talk normally. So, uh, yeah, okay, so nothing's either or. Let's put right. it that way, right? Um, there is a lot of gray area that we're ignoring. Well, not we, um, but uh, a lot of um, activists are ignoring because the gray area slows things down, right? If you want to get things going right now, you use blunt force. Right. Nuance involves conversation, talking about things, thinking critically about particular situations. That's going to take too long. That That's glacial. Right. We got to push this stuff uh, out right now. What's more, if you talk about nuance, a lot of critical social justice falls apart. Right. Um, because somebody is not just white anymore. Right. They're white from this socioeconomic background and, and yada, yada, yada. Intersectionality doesn't apply to whiteness, apparently, to white people anyway. Um, it, it only applies to um, people in marginalized demographics. But 
what I'm trying to say is nuance is kryptonite to a lot of uh, contemporary anti-racism. Yeah, I've heard it used as an insult, actually. I've seen people on Twitter say, "Ugh, another nuanced article, like eye roll kind of thing. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so you're going along in, in your career, like at a certain point, and maybe it was George Floyd, maybe it was before that. Did you just say, okay, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to be somebody who speaks out and I'm going to like, you know, be on team nuance, even if it, even if I, if there are penalties for doing that, like, what is that like for you? That's what I've been doing for the past, uh, three, almost four years now. Right. Um, just uh, pushing back on this stuff, mainly because nobody else is, you know, uh, in my field anyway. In, in um, you know, culture at large, there are various people doing it. Still not enough, in my opinion, um, but there are various people doing it. In my field, it was just me. So I was I, I was just sick of it. You know, I, I was sick of you know, the race essentialism. You know, there's a there's a proper way to be black in an improper way. And I'm always doing it improperly. Uh, I was sick of that. I was sick of everything being racist all the time. I, I was sick of the demonization of reason and rationality, right? Um, I was uh, sick of people not being able to ask questions of people of color, you know? Um, I, I was sick of all that, and it, it, and it got to a boiling point, you know? Um, and I decided to use that anger or frustration and channel it into, you know, pushing back productively. Uh, which is why I do the things I do today. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years, and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. So you're co-founder of Free Black Thought, which is a website dedicated to highlighting viewpoint diversity. Like within within the black intelligentsia or or beyond that, I mean, what's the audience for free black thought and and who writes for it besides you? Um, the audience for free black thought is everyone, really. But what we're trying to do is push back against the mainstream idea of what it means to be black, right? Black people have a certain attitude, they have certain ideas, they have certain wants and and 
and uh, desires and interests and things like that. That's the idea. Like we're all like the you know, clones of each other, right? Um, that's what we're pushing back on. So anybody who is trying to figure out the black experience, I guess that is our audience. Um, we 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 take a lot of uh, authors uh, who submit their work and publish it in the Journal of Free Black Thought. You know, I'm in there, but by no means am I a prominent part of that journal. Uh, I'm just a part of the uh, founding committee, and you know, with that, I I try to uh, you know write and go all over the country speaking about the detriments of racial essentialism, thinking that all people from a certain race are the same, right? Uh, and, and that's why I'm a part of what's going on. Uh, but Free Black Thought is not just me by any means. It's, it's, it's a group of people uh, who are passionate about this idea and want to do something about it. You know, So uh, we started that and we discovered each other after I was so frustrated and angry about what was going on and people caught wind of it, right? And uh, we, we found each other on the internet and started talking. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm doing free black thought. We're doing free black thought. <laughs> dreams, dreams can come true. What were you yeah. saying that got people's attention? Um, regarding what? Regarding pushing back on this stuff, like was there were you tweeting like were what kinds of things were you saying that was that was getting noticed, and were you getting like people mad at you other other black academics like what was your how how big of a pariah were you, and how long did it take is I guess my question i am I am definitely a pariah in my field, which is going to be very interesting. We have our first face to face in real life conference since the pandemic in February. And I plan on going. And um, this is a this is a conference that really started it all because I was pushing back on the keynote address that was all about racial essentialism, really. So uh, I pushed back on that, and I didn't I didn't back down when they uh, pushed back at me, uh, which made me evil. Although uh, I thought at the time I was you know being civil and and, and reasonable, but you know uh, yeah I I am. I'm wearing the black hat in the field. How about that? This was an academic conference. Is this a, a yes. like a rhetoric kind of conference or is yes. it broader than that? Okay. College okay. Composition and Communication. It's a rhetoric conference. Okay. Okay. So you're going to go to this conference. Are you going to be speaking? Like, how do you imagine it going? No, I was too busy to uh, get the submission in on time. So I'm not going to be speaking. I'm just going there to, you know, uh, hear what people in my field are doing. Do you think they would have taken your submission? If you had proposed something? I don't know. Maybe. So, okay, when you go around, you say you're going around the country talking about this stuff. What does that mean? Who's bringing you in? Who's listening? How receptive are the audiences? What's it like? Um, well, I'm, you know, I, I spoke at an event for FIRE, uh, for FAIR. Uh, I, I've done certain things. Heterodox Academy, uh, obviously. I've, uh, I've spoken there. And a lot of um, parent organizations uh, that are interested in what's going on. Mothers for Liberty. Uh, there's a uh, Colorado parent uh, network uh, that had me speak there. Um, just a bunch of people trying to, A, figure out what's going on, or B, they know what's going on and trying to figure out how to push back. So uh, that's what I've been doing mostly uh, with, uh, with my speaking. Okay, so these are friendly organizations, though. 
for the most part. So you're talking about fire, yeah, and fair, yeah. So and you and I saw each other at the at the heterodox uh, conference uh, in in Denver last year. So yes. yeah, because that's one of the things that I keep thinking about. There are so many of us in this space, quote unquote, but we are. It's it's remaining an echo chamber because we can't seem to find an audience outside of it. Nobody is inviting us to talk with general audiences. The Public Library Association is not bringing us in. I'm saying us, whatever I would talk about. I don't know what, but That's, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? That's why That's I'm going to this conference. I mean, people think I'm crazy for going because, you know, I, I am who I am in that context. But um, I'm going because, you know, I, I, I think somebody should be there representing you know, uh, some pushback to a lot of what's going on, right? I, I am the personification of uh, anti-wokeness in, in, in this field right now, uh, which makes me a really bad guy. I'm a villain, right? So, but, but that being said, that's all the more reason for me to go, right? Um, somebody has to go and, and show people that, A, you know, um, you shouldn't be afraid to talk about these things. Look at me not being afraid to talk about them, right? And, and B, that people are out there who aren't buying this stuff, you know? So I, I, th I feel like it's my duty as, you know, somebody who's trying to right the ship here when it comes to race relations uh, to go to this conference, although I am being dropped behind enemy lines. Mm -hmm. When you say there are people out there who aren't buying this stuff, it seems to me that's, that's most people. I mean, th this stuff does not represent what the majority of, of Black people want from their lives or the way they see themselves in relation to mm -hmm. society. This is, it's like when we talk about, you know, gender issues or, or a lot of the Me Too stuff, it's representing what a, a tiny slice of pretty loud people in elite institutions and on Twitter are saying. And that's like a, that is its own cohort, right? So how do what do you actually say to somebody? And I think this is actually instructive to all of us for all of us who find ourselves in these situations. Like, what do you say to somebody who's like in your face and telling you that you don't know what you're talking about or that you're privileged or that you have internalized racism or you're on the wrong side of history, et cetera, et cetera? Um, well, I, I haven't had that pushback in some time. You know, okay. Well, um, it's coming. What are you planning to say? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm planning to do a couple of things. I'm, I'm planning to just to speak my side of the story and, and, and point out the logical fallacies and material fallacies within their arguments, but as well as talking about the banality of what they're, they're talking about, you know, uh, the constitution was written during a time when there was slavery. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, uh, just, just, I mean, there, there have been you know, amendments and, and, and things like that. So what exactly is the point there besides talking about how racism happened? You know, so I, I, I plan on doing that. And I plan on saying, well, you know, two can play at this game. You know what I mean? I, you know, if you're going to uh, redefine terms, so can I. You know, I can redefine terms too. You know, uh, if you're going to uh, talk about how you know, because there's no objective reality, we need to do this, that, and the other thing. I can say, okay, because there's no objective reality, we can do these things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so um, I'm, I'm going to give them a taste of their own medicine. You know, um, is what I'm trying to say here. So, those are the things that I have, you know, planned right now. I mean, I didn't write this down or anything. I didn't 
you know, write out a, uh, you know, several <laughs> point like, idea or, in your, in or your plan pocket, for how yes. to do things. It's just in my head. But yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. Or or I'm just going to laugh in their faces. There was an article last week from Scientific American that uh, said that, you know, uh, the violence in the NFL is disproportionately affecting people of color. So and, and this is a problem. <laughs> I mean, OK, well. So what? Again, banality. There are, the NFL is 70% black, so obviously that's going to happen. Right. It's causation correlation. Right, right, right. But the, that person's point is to keep perpetuating this idea that it's an us-them situation. Keep perpetuating this idea that uh, black people are always victimized. Uh, they're always in a downtrodden stance, right? Just pushing that out there so that the social reality is that, you know, there are good guys people of color and bad guys, white people who are happy, right? So the writer, the person who wrote that article, I am certain knew how dumb that article was. Yeah. But that person also knew that, you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, uh, flood the pond with crap, right? Get it out there. Saturate society with the idea that, that there is a, a oppressor and oppressed uh, at all times. Saturate popular culture with the idea that it's not whether racism happened, it's how it manifested in this situation. Yeah. And it's also an opportunity. If you're trying to make it as a cultural critic or a journalist or an opinion writer or, uh, you know, a, a public facing act, high profile activist, you have to say these things. You have to ha take these extreme positions because that's how, th that's where the currency is. That's how you get traction. That's how you get visibility. And it's just this like very, it's just this very destructive kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. People accuse me of that too. I've had, I've had non-Black people. I mean, this person looked white, but I, I've been accused of, uh, and this is, this is just, you know, the people who I, I, I know of. I've, I've been accused of uh, doing this just because, oh, as a Black person pushing back, you can make a name for yourself. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I, I, I've been accused of that as well. So, I mean... My response to that is just to write very common sense articles about why what they're doing is asinine, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like the campus stuff, I, I want to actually hear a little bit about your campus, what the students are like there. You teach at York College of Pennsylvania. Is it College of York? York College of Pennsylvania. Yes. York College. Okay. You're, you're, Retours of York. That's your Twitter handle. So I'm conflating, right? Col York College. Okay. So this is not uh, an elite institution. This is not Brown. This is not Wesleyan. I'm assuming that a lot of the students are first generation college students. Like, where? What did they think of all of this? Um, they're pretty reasonable about it. You know, I, I, I in one of my classes, I show the complete Evergreen story. That's the the documentary uh, from Benjamin Boyce about. Evergreen State College and what happened there in 2017. And I have them talk about that. And, you know, they, they all eventually, I mean, and not because of me coaxing them, that's what I'm, what's going to be uh, said, uh, but they all come to the conclusion that they, the students have the best of intentions, but they're going about it the wrong way. Right. Okay. Uh, so they all seem to come to that. The most critical students are always students of color. Critical of those activists, you mean? Right. Critical, critical of, of those the student activists. activists. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. 
um, they will be the ones that will say, this is dumb. And like the, the, the white students will say, well, I don't understand why they're doing this. I mean, I, I think they're just going about it the, the wrong way. And, you know, the students of color will be like, no, they're childish, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is which That's is quite good. interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder if they would say that like at Yale, a black student. Uh, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you and I had an interesting exchange when we were at the at the Heterodox Academy conference last summer. We did a like a live stream with with David Fuller for his uh, Rebel Wisdom channel, which I think is is no more, but it was still is still going at the time. Uh, and I think I asked you guys why it is that so many professors so many administrators even know that this stuff stinks. They know it's absolutely bogus, but they keep their mouths shut. And I said, is it just because they have mortgages to pay and they've got kids to feed and all of that? Or is it something beyond that? And you had a very interesting answer. Do you, do you remember what it was? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> the answer was... And it sounds like it sounds glib, but I think you are you're absolutely right. And I think about it all the time. You said they they want to be invited to the cocktail parties. The the professors want to be they don't want to be ostracized in their communities. And you know, I thought about it a lot and I've actually like it occurred to me that, you know, we forget that most college campuses are like in small communities. It's not Columbia. It's not Harvard. It's not like there's a big city out there for if a professor gets ostracized from their faculty party, they can like walk down the street and go hear jazz or whatever it is. Like, you know, there's limited social opportunities. And so people are very protective of their of their social standing. Is that am I remembering that right? That's what you said? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I I that's that sounds like me. Yeah, uh, it sounds like something I, I've said in other uh, situations, too. So uh, and I do believe that uh, that is part of the uh, uh, the problem, right, that people just don't want to be the odd man out. They don't want to be wait for it, blacklisted at all. Um, what they're you know, but but there's 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 more to it than that as well. And, and I'm, I'm starting to I mean, I, I've always you know, known about the, uh, for, for last five, four or five years anyway, I've known about the, uh, you know, Marxist foundations of, uh, critical theory in general and, uh, how people tend to look at culture as a tool, right? Uh, I'm going to change definitions and things like that. I'm going to make this bad and this good so that I can, you know, pretty much weaken what we see as America today. So that it will be easier to uh, to topple, right? So, I mean, some of that is going on too. Now, I don't know who's who in every college situation, um, but I, I know for a fact there are people out there who are are all about that. You know, um, schooling is a Trojan horse for transforming society uh, into something a little less capitalistic, right? Um, and I mean, wherever you sit on on that thing, uh, capitalism versus something else. The point is that a lot of this is it boils down to indoctrination uh, of students. Now, if you are somebody who 
embraces that ideology that we need to transform society uh, as far away from what it is today as, as possible or tear it all down and start over, something I, I hear often. I guess I'm rambling now, but what I'm trying to say is some people are like that and some people are not. And it's hard to parse them out. Um, I'm, I'm currently researching and working right now on a um, book that looks at, well, part of the book anyway, that looks at this from two different frameworks, the comic frame and the tragic frame. And this comes from Kenneth Burke, a philosopher from the you know last 50 years. And uh, the comic frame is these people are not evil, they're mistaken. The tragic frame is these people aren't mistaken, they're evil, right? Uh, or, or by evil, I mean, they know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to topple things uh, to get what they want, right? Um, I'm trying to, and it's hard to figure out who is who, but I think if I describe, you know, uh, each frame, the comic and the tragic, then people on their own can say, oh, this seems comic to me, or this seems tragic to me, and they can figure out what to do after that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because it seems like there's maybe a small handful of people who are the the tragic, yeah. the purveyors of the tragedy, but most people are just going along. It's just, right. they're they're in lockstep. Yeah. Well, so we're going to do a little bonus. So before we wrap up this portion of the conversation, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts for people who like have kids in public schools, for instance, and they're hearing about this curriculum and they're hearing, they hear one thing from uh, the Chris Rufos of the world and, and Ron DeSantis, and they hear other things from their nice Facebook friends that this isn't so bad. Like how is somebody even supposed to figure out what CRT means for their school curriculum, how, how bad it is or isn't, and how to even approach the subject with a teacher or a school board or whatever authorities are relevant in that situation. How divisive are the concepts? Um, you, can, you, can, you can ask that uh, first and foremost. It's good to do ethnic studies. Um, it's good to know about... Uh, African-American history, right? All those things are good, but how is it being done? Um, what's the pedagogy? You know, what's, what's the methodology? When it comes to discipline, how's that being done? Restorative justice can be, okay, you're, you're, you have the detention, but in the detention, we're going to do some cognitive behavioral work or we're going to meditate and figure out why we did what we did or something like that. Um, or restorative justice can be, we're not going to punish the kid because he's black and he has a hard life. You know, mm -hmm. which one is it? Now, you, some people may have problems with the former, but at least the former is actually trying to do something. Whereas the latter is, you know, in, in my opinion, um, laziness from a comic standpoint or another way of toppling the system from a tragic standpoint. So I would just ask, uh, you know, what's going on here? What are the what are the definitions? Uh, what do you mean by diversity? What do you mean by equity? What do you mean by inclusion? Right. And, you know, their methodology. How, how are you teaching these things? What are you saying in class? That's what I would do. I, I, I wouldn't worry about labels. I wouldn't worry about CRT or, or critical pedagogy or anything like that. I just ask the aforementioned questions and go from there. Do you think that racism is getting worse? Um, no. I don't. Um, I, I think it's, it's still here. 
Um, but I, I think it's much better than it was even 20 uh, years ago. The problem is, you know, it was it was getting better. And then, you know, uh, certain anti-racist initiatives came up, are coming up. And it's kind of setting us back a little bit. Yeah. So, yes, racism is still here and it has gotten better. But contemporary anti-racism is kind of keeping it alive, if you if you ask me. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. It fe- I mean, I talk about this with Sarah Hader and my other podcast all the time. Like we, we just people are thinking about race all the time, mm-hmm. like in a way that we didn't 10 years ago. Like, I think there are white people who see a black person and become afraid that that black person is going to interpret everything they do as racist. Right. Like you're, exactly. you're less likely to interact with a lot of people. Right. And that's, that's the lesson a lot of people take away from these, these workshops and things like that. What I learned here is that I should just avoid black people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, it's absolutely, it's just, it's, tragic i mean it's that's it's absolutely racist it's uh we're going in the wrong direction anyway all right well i can always talk with you uh forever we're gonna do some bonus content where i'm gonna ask you about how you feel about being the age you are and it may some of these issues may may fold into that but it's a little little uh little detour i'm taking uh subject matter wise so anyway well eric where can we find you um what do we need to know about you if we anything we haven't covered before we sign off, what do you want people to know in terms of how to find you? And um, I'm at Twitter at at Redders underscore of underscore York, and uh, obviously I'm a part of Free Black Thought www.freeblackthought.com, and uh, you know you can really just kind of Google me. I hate to say that it's 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 it, it's, it's, it's one of the quintessential douchey things to say, isn't it? Google me, dude. I never I never say that. Oh, yeah. Google's your friend, bro. Well, hey, I never say that because there's so many bad pictures of me. So I don't I never <laughs> want people to Google me. But I think your pictures are good as far as I've seen. So, okay. Most of them are OK. <laughs> Most of them. There, there are some stinkers out there that I wish I could take down. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, it's always a pleasure. So hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you. That was my conversation with Eric Smith. He is a professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania and co-founder of Free Black Thought, a media platform wherein a small group of scholars, technologists, parents, and American citizens are determined to amplify vital Black voices that are rarely heard on mainstream platforms. He's also a writing fellow for the Heterodox Academy, And he does a lot of other stuff. So I hope you will go look him up if you want to know more. Again, if you want to hear an extra 15, 20 minutes or so where we get kind of personal about Eric's life and how he's feeling about things these days, become a paying subscriber at any level to this podcast Substack, which you can find at megandaum.substack.com, M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. I'm going to be doing a lot more bonus content this year, which you'll only be able to hear if you're a paying subscriber. So do check that out. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.